My name is Keith Cowart, lead pastor of Christ Community, and each week I or one of our pastors will bring a message that we pray will stir your heart. We believe that God is the source of life and truth and that His Word is one of the primary means through which we make that vital connection with God. It's our hope that whether you're already a believer or just beginning to open your heart to God, that the truth of His Word would point you to Him. He came that you would have life and that more abundantly. Well, in just a few minutes, um, I'm going to be reading from John 2 as we continue our study of the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And as Gil already hinted, we are going to be talking about miracles today. And in particular, we're going to be talking about John's account of Jesus' very first miracle. Jesus' first miracle. Uh, As a pastor... I love weddings. Um, I love the laughter and the joy and the hope that uh, fills the whole event from the rehearsal on Friday night and the dinner that follows to the the service itself to the um, reception and the send-off that comes at the end of the evening or day um, when the, the bride and groom actually leave and take off for their honeymoon. Some weddings are simple. Some are extravagant. But I will tell you that no weddings today in our part of the world hold a candle to a first century Jewish wedding. Now we don't know everything that took place in a Jewish wedding, but we know enough to help us understand the basics of what a Jewish wedding was like. And what we do know tells us a great deal. Uh, A Jewish wedding was not typically held on a Saturday, which is the most common day for us. But generally, a Jewish wedding, if the girl was, uh, was a virgin, then it would be held on a Wednesday. If she had been uh, widowed, it would be held on a Thursday. Where that uh, tradition came from, I have no idea, but that's the way it worked. And on the wedding day, um, it would typically be held at night. And the main reason for that is that um, the, the customs surrounding the event were much more impressive at night than they were in the day. Because, see, here's what would happen. It would start at the home of the bridegroom. The bridegroom's family, his closest friends, which would be like his groomsmen, uh, and all the invited guests would walk in procession from the home of the groom to the home of the bride at night, each one carrying a torch. So you can imagine how brilliant that must have been as, as a whole wedding party walked through town on their way from one house to the other. When they got to the home of the groom, the, the, the special friend of the bridegroom, we actually talked about him a few weeks ago because John the Baptist says, I am just a friend of the bridegroom. Remember that? And we said that there's one groomsman whose job was to stay at the home of the bride and to guard her to make sure that no one else came and got her until the bridegroom was there. Well, when the whole party arrived at the house, he would come out, he would, he would receive them, and then he would shout in a loud voice to everyone inside, the bridegroom has come. And at that point, the groom and his groomsmen would go into the home while everybody else stayed outside holding their torches. They would go into the home. It's here that they would carry out the the religious portion of the ceremony. We don't really know much about that at all. But they would do it inside the bride's home. And when when that part of the service was over, 
the bride, her family, the groom, his groomsmen would all come out. They would join the rest of the wedding party. And now they would march back through the town, all holding their torches to go back to the home of the bridegroom. Now, when they got to the home of the bridegroom, this was the official beginning of the wedding feast. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word feast, I think of a single great meal. You know, we think of one great meal that we call a feast. Well, that's where things get very, very different in Jewish customs. Because when Jews talked about having a feast, and particularly when they were talking about a wedding feast, this was something that could go on for as long as a week. A wedding feast that lasts six to seven days was not uncommon. And here's the catch. It was the responsibility of the groom and his family to provide all of the food and all of the drink for the entire wedding party for a week. And you just thought expensive weddings were a modern invention. I mean, this was a, this was a major undertaking. And because of that, there were, there were all kinds of social customs around this that, that governed the way it should be done. And it was very important for Jews that it be done the right way. Uh, for example, let me, just, let, me, let me help you to really understand just how significant and important this is. It, it, let's just say I've got a son that is going to be married. I pray that happens one day. Um, I've got two of them on their way, but it looks like a long way off right now. Uh, but let's say I've got a son that's going to get married. And I decide to throw him um, a wedding feast, and it's going to last for six days. And I invite you, my neighbor, to come join us for the feast. Well, the social uh, norms of the day were this. If I invite you to my feast, when your son gets married, it is an obligation for you to invite me. Not only that... But if your wedding feast is not similar or or the same level of quality as mine, I can actually sue you by law for not fulfilling your duty. That's how big of a deal this was. Uh, And so it was a a huge deal, and it was something that, uh, that, that everybody understood. That is the background to this story. You need to understand that background, particularly in terms of one insight that's going to be very important. So now let's read John 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus said. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill them with water, so they fill them to the brim. Then he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, 
Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best for last. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, now what all is happening here in this story? The wedding is held in a very small town called Cana of Galilee. Now, the truth is we don't know where that is. Uh, It was not on any early maps. Um, We think it was somewhere close to Nazareth, but we have no idea where it is, which means it was an insignificant town uh, where insignificant and probably very poor people live. Now, Cana of Galilee has been immortalized in in almost every wedding liturgy for the last 2,000 years. So you've probably heard the term Cana of Galilee. But it was not a big place, and it was not a place where important people lived. It was a small place with poor people, which means it would have been very difficult for them to do all that I described earlier in terms of pulling off a great celebration for a wedding. Well, Mary has been invited to the wedding, and so has Jesus and his disciples. There's some thought, and there's a a fair amount of uh, support for this. This was probably a relative of the family. Um, If it was not a relative, it was absolutely a very, very dear friend. And it looks like Mary is actually one of the hosts. That she is serving in a role of hostess. And maybe not the only one, but certainly one of the hostess. Because it's Mary that brings to Jesus' attention that the wine has run out. Now, more than likely, especially before you just heard the background to a Jewish wedding, you would look at that and say, what's, what's the big deal with the wine running out? But now you understand that this was a huge deal. Uh, they were on the cusp of a genuine disaster socially. I mean, uh, th- this family could be sued for failing to provide enough food and water or, or drink for the, the wedding party. At the very least, they're about to be utterly humiliated in the eyes of their neighbors and in the eyes of the whole town. So when Mary approached Jesus and said, there is no more wine... She would have been mustering all the drama she could get. She wanted him to understand this is really, really important. Now, we are not sure all that she expected. We don't know for sure what she expected Jesus to do. Here's what we do know. We do know that 30 years earlier, an angel appeared to her and said to her, Mary, you are with child. Even though you've never been with a man, And you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mary had known from the very beginning that there was something unique and unusual about the birth of this child. She has been waiting for 30 years to find out all that that means. You have to understand that the Jews were were not real clear on exactly what the Messiah would, would be or do. And she's been wondering for 30 years, what is he going to be? What's he going to be like? What's he going to do? And finally, after 30 years, in the previous few days, something has begun to happen. John the Baptist has baptized Jesus. He has declared to everyone who is there, 
this is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the earth. Now Jesus has gone out and he's gotten disciples who are now following him. So it looks like the, something is about to happen. And what I think is really happening here is this. I think Mary is doing a very typical motherly thing. Mary is coming to Jesus and she is nudging him into action. She's saying, Jesus, it is time for you to draw on those heavenly resources uh, that you've got. And Jesus responds about like most sons responds. He, respond, he, he didn't like it. Uh, you can tell from his words here. Um, Jesus' response is, dear woman, why do you involve me? Now, I do want you to understand that that's not as... It's, it's not as harsh as it appears in some translations. The NIV, I think, does get this right. When it says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Some of the other, like one translation just says, woman, what does this have to do with us? Now that doesn't sound very nice, right? But I want you to, here's what you need to know. That was a very, very typical and completely appropriate way for a, a man to speak to a woman. In fact, it is somewhat endearing. Uh, Jesus will actually say the same thing when he is hanging on the cross and he is saying to his mother, I want you to know that I'm gonna, you're going to be okay. I'm going to give you to John. He says, dear woman, behold your son. So this is not a cold, hard thing that Jesus is saying. It's very appropriate. However, it is not the way you would, a son would typically address a mother. And that's actually really significant. Because here's what's happening. What's happening is this. Jesus is letting her know that their relationship is about to change. Their relationship is about to change. She will no longer be his mother the way she has been for 30 years. Because now he is not her son. He is God's Messiah. In fact, he will say often in the, in, the, uh, in the Gospels, he will say, my true family are those who follow me and obey my commands. He will say that my earthly family is not my true family. My family is all those. So he is saying to his own family, to his own mother, if you're going to follow me, you now must become a disciple. You must come and follow me. Now, I think it's very clear that's what Jesus is doing because uh, he doesn't, she's not offended by this. She's not offended. Uh, she simply says to them, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. So she's not offended. I cannot help but believe, though, that there was a tinge of grief. I mean, you've got you to gotta imagine that. I mean, here is a woman who carried him for nine months here is the woman who gave birth to him and heard his very first cry, just like the one uh, Holly described a moment ago with Bethel. She was the one that changed his diapers and nursed him. She was the one that taught him to walk, taught him to talk. She had watched him grow strong in body and in skill in his father's workshop. And you've got to know that she had treasured every moment of that season of her life. And she now knew that that season is gone. That season is gone. And she has to do what every mother has to do. She had to release her son. But in this case, she was releasing him to something that would change the nature of their relationship forever. 
She's not offended. She actually seems to get it. She seems to get it and and simply responds as a disciple with obedience when she says, just do whatever he tells you to do. And so Jesus finds the servants and he says to them, go and get six jars and bring them in and fill them up all the way to the very top with water. Um, and they do so. And then he says, now draw some of the water out, take it to the master of ceremonies. They do. And so he comes in, he gives the master of ceremonies some of the water that has been turned to wine. The master of ceremonies drinks it and discovers that it is the finest wine he's ever tasted. He's never tasted wine quite like this. Now, what does all this mean? What, what's going on here? Uh, let me just say that on the surface, uh, we, could, we could conclude that this is just simply uh, a demonstration of the kindness and extravagance of God. Uh, kindness because uh, here was a family that had made a critical error of miscalculation. They had calculated how much wine they would need for the feast, and they had miscalculated. And now they were staring at the horror that their family was about to be shamed in the face, in the eyes of everyone in the city. Now Jesus steps into that situation, and he transforms what could have been the most humiliating and embarrassing uh, moment of their lives together, and he actually turns it into a moment where they are honored and exalted. That's what he does. I mean, uh, you look at this, and, and when the master of ceremony says, uh, I can't believe what you've done here. I mean, everybody else brings the best wine first, and then they bring the cheap wine later when nobody really cares because they're so much full of the other wine. And he says, but you have done something that's never been done. You have saved the best for last. You know what he's really saying? You guys just raised the bar for the whole neighborhood. Thank you very much. Because now we're going to all have to do the same thing in order to keep up with you. I'm, I'm not so sure he's excited about what he's saying here. I think there's a, there's a hint of, of exasperation. Why in the world would you do this? But they have brought the very best. Here's what I want you to see, though. Jesus took what would have been a humiliating situation and turned it into a moment of honor. You know, when Jesus said earlier, this is not my time, it's not my time, Do you find it interesting that he says this is not my time and then he turns right around and does exactly what Mary seemed to be asking him to do? How how do we understand that? I think what Jesus was saying is this. He knew that it was not yet his time for the world to know the fullness of his identity. In fact, that is a phrase that John will use over and over again in the whole gospel. And every time it's used... The phrase is, it is not yet my time until Jesus is in the shadow of the cross. In the shadow of the cross. Jesus is saying that that is my ultimate destination and it is not yet time for that. Jesus was not yet ready to reveal that identity of who he was. But, and this is powerful to me. He was very willing to step into the situation and to meet the need of the hour. Do you see the kindness of God in that? Do you see God's heart stepping in to turn a bad situation into a good one? Not only that, but he does it extravagantly. I mean, I don't know if you were doing the math a minute ago, but there's six jars. 
And he says to fill them, each one of them holds 20 to 30 gallons. We now have 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And it's not just cheap wine, it's the best wine. Uh, By the way, you may not know this, but for everyday drink, Jewish people would mix three parts water to one part wine. Three parts. So guess how far 180 gallons will go? That's like 480 gallons of liquid, right? I mean, this is way more than is needed for the, for the feast. I mean, this is enough for the feast and to provide the, the, the new couple with wine for years. Or probably what's happening is this. Jesus said, I've just given you the greatest wedding gift you could possibly find. I possibly have. Go sell it, and you guys are going to be in, in, in good place for a long, long time. This was an incredible wedding gift straight from the throne of heaven. And Jesus does it extravagantly. Now, why, why is that so important? I, I have a feeling that for many of us, when we think of God and even Jesus, we think of a, of a, of a God who is severe and serious and always sacrificial. And I think God is trying to give us a sense of his true heart here. He says, I want you to see that my son's first miracle takes place at a wedding where he is enjoying himself. It is a place of tremendous joy. And when I meet a need, I don't just meet it, I meet it extravagantly. And he meets this need beyond imagination. I just want to say for some of us, that's probably the the only message we need to hear this morning. We just need to know that's the heart of God. Do you believe that for yourself? I mean, do you believe that God's heart toward you is good and kind and generous? Some of us have a hard time seeing that. And And I believe that God wants you to see today that that is his heart toward you. But John also lets us know in no uncertain terms that there is much more here than meets the eye. Because here's here's what he says. He says in the last verse, this is the first of the signs that Jesus performed. There will be six more, by the way. A lot of people study the book of John around the seven signs of the book of John. Now, that's the word he uses. All the other gospel writers uses, they use terms like mighty works. Uh, John doesn't use that term. He simply uses the term sign. In fact, the NIV translates it miraculous sign, but you need to know that the word miraculous is not even in, it's not even in the original Greek. It's implied. I mean, it's obviously a miracle takes place, but he is pointing out that it is meant to be a sign. Now, why is that? Because, you see, I think we tend to think of miracles as things that we can't explain. For John, a miracle was actually meant to explain something to us. That's the whole point of a sign. A miracle was to point us to some greater truth. And for John, that is exactly what this is doing. But what is the truth that he's trying to point us to? To truly understand it, you have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the book. Don't forget, the book, the Gospel of John was written as, it was the last Gospel written. And it was a Gospel that was very clearly written after much reflection and thought. And John's whole purpose is to present a Gospel that will teach us the great truths of Jesus' life and message. 
And so when he says this is a sign, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the book because John has actually been preparing us to understand what that means from the first verse of the book. Do you remember what it says? The first words. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning. Any Jewish person hearing those words would have immediately thought of the Genesis account of creation. Of creation. In the beginning are the first words of the Torah, the first verses of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Guess what follows? After the, uh, what we call the prologue or the introduction, we see a series of events, and John points out, makes, it, makes a big deal of it, that this happened on the first day, this happened the very next day, the very next day, the very next day. All of the events of chapter 1 happened, bam, 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 one day after another. And then we get to chapter 2, and we're told that this wedding happens on the third day after the last one that was mentioned, which puts the wedding on which day? Day 7. This wedding happens on the seventh day of the first week of Jesus' ministry. And the sign becomes crystal clear. The sign becomes crystal clear that Jesus has come to give birth to a new creation. He has come to give birth to a brand new creation. And then we look at the details of this story and it becomes even more clear. Because it's, it, it, John makes it absolutely clear that he is giving us details to make sure we will not miss the sign. He says Jesus got six stone jars, the kind that they use in the purification, uh, for, for purification ceremonies, which was a symbol of the Old Testament covenant, or the covenant of the Old Testament. And and so what do we see happening here? Jesus is giving birth to a new creation that will transform the old into something new. That will transform the water of the old covenant law into the wine of the gospel. I love the way Leon Morris captures this so succinctly. He says, this particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ. The water of the law into the wine of the gospel. The transforming power power of Jesus. But here's the thing. Notice in the story that most of the people in the story have no idea what's going on. Most of the people in the story are clueless. Now the servants know something has happened, something amazing, but they have no response at all. It's only the disciples who respond with belief. It's only the disciples who respond with belief. I'm wondering this morning where you would say, I desperately need to see the transforming power of God in my life. I'm wondering this morning where as you sit right where you are, you're thinking, I need the transforming power of God in my life. I'm wondering if we're going to choose to believe Will we choose to believe that he can do what he says he will do? I think it's 
so powerful at the end of chapter 1. Jesus is having this conversation with Nathaniel. Do you remember Nathaniel comes up and, and Jesus says to him, an Israelite within whom there is no guile, and Philip says, how do you know me? And he says, I saw you under the tree, and immediately Nathaniel knows that he knows something that nobody else could possibly know, and he cries out, you are the son of God. You remember what Jesus said to him? He kind of looks back at Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament as an illustration, but what he's really saying to him is this, Nathaniel, if you think that's something, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet because you're about to see heaven invade earth. And the first time that happens is at Cana of Galilee. Heaven has invaded earth. You know, I think about the world that we live in. And so much of the world that we live in is like the guests at the wedding feast. People who truly have no clue that there is another universe right with ours. And that there is a transforming power that takes place when that universe intersects with this one. There's so many people who just don't even realize that's, that's a reality. Uh, we, we were talking about this last night at dinner. Andrew had read something on Facebook, I think. Uh, a story of, of a group of scientists who have come out and they've claimed that they have found evidence of a parallel universe. Anybody else see this article? Uh, They're saying they have evidence that there is a breach in in the the wall that separates the two universes. Now, I hate to rain on their party, but uh, Jesus knew that 2,000 years ago. Jesus knew how close heaven really was. And Jesus knew that the power of that other world can invade our world and bring transformation. Some of us are, are like the servants. We, we've heard all the stories. We know the message of the stories. But we have never responded with faith. We've never chosen to respond with belief. I'm wondering for some of you if today might not be that day when you take that first step to believe that heaven can invade my world. That heaven can invade my world. Where do you need to see the transforming power of God? Are there others here today who need a miracle of physical healing? Are there people here today that need to see a miracle of healing in your marriage or in your family? There are people here today that need to be set free from the bondage of sin. Are there people here that need to experience the greatest miracle of all, that God can take a sinner and turn him or her into a saint? That God can take an enemy and turn him into a child, a dearly beloved son or daughter? You're going to let heaven invade your broken world today?